Hey, good morning, everybody. How are you? Well, me too. So about 15 years ago, I guess, um, I came across a book, I read a book that was one of those um, books that served to crystallize some things that I had been thinking about uh, with regard to the church. Ever read a book like that where, you know, you're reading like, yes, that's, that's what I've been thinking, that's what I wanted, that's how I wanted to say it, and so forth. Um, so this book, interestingly, even though it, it did that for me concerning the church, it wasn't a book about the church. In fact, it wasn't even written from a Christian perspective. It was actually a book about business um, and leadership. Uh, the book was called Built to Last by uh, Jim Collins, same guy who wrote Good to Great. And the concept behind Built to Last was they were looking at companies that had been leaders in their specific industry for a period of 50 years or more. Now, there aren't a lot of companies like that. That's pretty stratified air for a corporation, a company, to be a leader in its industry for that long a period of time. And so they're looking at these companies, and the question was, do they share anything in common, or what things do they share in common that, that we can learn from? And uh, so it was really kind of fascinating, um, the things that they discovered. One of them was stated this way. These companies preserve the core and stimulate progress. They preserve the core and stimulate progress. In other words, these companies have a very clear understanding about why they're in business, what they're in business to do. They're very clear about that, and they don't deviate from that. But being clear about that, then they find creative ways to innovate around those things in their, in their areas of business. Right? Some companies lose sight of what their core is. Right? They forget why they went into business and they end up venturing off into all kinds of things that are unrelated and it's like a ship with no rudder. Other companies think that their process, the way they do business, is what's core. And so as things change around, as the world changes and so forth, they don't adapt to that and so they fall by the wayside. So great prevailing companies do both. They preserve the core while stimulating progress. Think about a company like Disney. That would be one of these companies. Been around for well over 50 years at this point, probably closer to 70 years, and, uh, and prevailing in their, in their industry. If you look at Disney's mission statement, they're really about doing three things and three things only. And so if you boil it down, their mission statement, they want to do these three things. They want to entertain, they want to inform, and they want to inspire. They want to entertain, inform, and inspire. That's their core. That's what they exist to do. And so across a whole lot of disciplines, they bring that idea. So television, movies, theme parks, cruise ships, but it's all around the idea of entertaining, informing, and inspiring and then they stimulate progress around those things. 
So boil it down now to a theme park, right? So their theme park, Disney, Disney World, right? A place I never want to go. Um, and I, I know I'm, I'm one of the few. You guys love, people love this place. Um, not my thing, but it's brilliant, right? So it started with the Magic Kingdom. And the Magic Kingdom, the purpose was to entertain, inform, and inspire. And there's elements of that throughout the Magic Kingdom. But then they continued to want to um, progress, right? To, to innovate around that. And so the next thing was Epcot with the same idea, to entertain, to inform, and to inspire. And then Animal Kingdom grew up as they're stimulating progress. Same thing, right? Entertain, inform, inspire. What Disney doesn't do is Disney doesn't say, you know what, you can make money in plumbing supplies, so why don't we start a plumbing supply division? You can make money in medical supplies, or you can make money building bridges, so we're gonna, we're gonna do these other, they don't do that because that's not their core business. They're very clear about what they do, and that's what they stick to while inspiring progress. We're in a series, just to remind you of where we are, we're in a series where we're talking about five principles of community. And this document that we wrote um, back about a year ago was the result of what was going on within the United Methodist denomination where uh, there was a vote about how we were going to be in ministry to gay, lesbian, transgendered people and so. And very divisive and very hurtful to a whole lot of folks. And uh, so in the midst of that, we put together this document, Five Principles of Community. And so we've been going through that. So, so far we've talked about unity, we've talked about culture, we've talked about scripture. This morning I want to talk about essentials, essentials. What is core for us? Because you see, what crystallized for me when I read Built to Last was the very thing that businesses need to do, the church needs to do as well. We need to be really clear about what is central, what is core. In fact, there's a name for it, a Greek word, kerygma. So biblical scholars and, and uh, teachers and so forth use this idea, kerygma, which means to proclaim or to preach, to teach, but it really has come to mean the central truths of the Christian faith. So we need to know what is our kerygma, what's central to us. And when the church is really clear about this, we can do great things. So we know that we have a mandate from Jesus. Jesus gave the church a mandate. And the mandate was, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's our mandate. And we bring into the world a message, the gospel, the good news. So we have a mandate and we have a message. And when the church is clear about its mandate and about its message and it begins to innovate, right? To stimulate progress, great things can happen. The church is always reinventing ways that we can be engaged in the world bringing the good news. And the church at its best has always done that in really kind of creative ways, right? 
house churches have sprung up, small groups as a, as a concept, mega churches uh, have sprung up with this kind of, these uh, new approaches of communicating the message. I was talking to a pastor not long ago, and their church uh, started a food truck. Right? Food trucks have become popular. And so they built a food truck, and they go to a nearby college campus with this food truck. Now, when you have food on a college campus, you draw a crowd, right? So students and faculty and so forth come to this food truck, and then they have folks from the church who just circulate around and, and get acquainted and meet people and talk to them and get to know them and, you know, invite them to come to the church uh, at any point that they might be interested in and so forth. And, and, but it's just a way to connect with people. Here at Hope, we started a campus in Mount Laurel, right? Because we have a mandate to go into all the world and we're bringing the good news, and we're finding some creative ways to do that, how we connect with people. And so this relationship with Chick-fil-A and township uh, uh, employees and so forth, just as a way to connect so that we can bring the good news to another place. When the church is clear about what's core, we can do amazing things. But just like companies, churches sometimes forget what is core, what is essential, what our kerygma is, and in those cases, we can do great harm. This is not a new idea. This is not something unique to our time and our place in life. This has been going on all along. Jesus dealt with it. The Apostle Paul dealt with it. Christians all throughout history have dealt with it losing sight of what's core and getting lost in things that aren't and doing damage. So, with that in mind, I want to look at a couple of passages of Scripture to show you what I'm talking about. So Jesus was dealing with the Pharisees, right? And the Pharisees were all over him about how he wasn't adhering to the law in the proper way. He wasn't paying attention to their traditions. He was just making a mess, his teaching. They disagreed with it. And so they're all over him. And Matthew's recording this back and forth between Jesus and the Pharisees. And it gets more and more heated, and they're more and more upset with him. And he's just running circles around these guys. And it all kind of gets culminated. Jesus kind of condenses the whole thing down at the end of the 23rd chapter of Matthew, verses 23 and 24. Listen to what he, what he said. This is Jesus. Hypocrites, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Blind guides, you strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you swallow a camel. It's actually a funny picture that Jesus paints here. I'm sure he got a a lot of yucks out of that at the time, painting this word picture, you know, straining at this little gnat and then swallowing a camel. A New Testament uh, scholar, in reflecting on this passage, uh, wrote some interesting words, and I, I want to share 
I want to read them uh, directly because he said it well and uh, rather than me trying to condense it down. This is what he wrote about what happened here. Their tithing was meticulous and noteworthy but hypocritical because it served to soothe the guilt of their neglect of the weightier matters of the law. It is both possible and common to be distracted with relatively trivial matters when a lost world is perishing. The weighty matters do not refer to more difficult or harder matters, but to the more central, the more decisive ones. So they're all torqued down about how they're going to obey the, the laws around tithing, so much so that they're straining, you know, to get the tiniest little thing right. Meanwhile, they're missing the big things. What are the big things? Well, Jesus told them. Justice, mercy, faith. These are the things that the law was designed to encourage not this little nitpicky stuff, and you're missing the big thing for the little thing. You're missing that which is central for something that is not essential. Same thing happened after the church got started, and Christians were um, beginning to gather into groups became known as, initially it was called the way, and then it was, uh, it was called the gathering, the ecclesia, we call it the church. And people from wide varieties of walks of life were coming together. Jews and Gentiles, people from different cultures, different backgrounds, different languages, different histories and experiences, but they're all coming together as followers of Jesus. And that's a beautiful picture, right? But it also creates some controversy, some conflict. So one of the conflicts that emerged, Paul is writing about in his letter to the Romans. And the, the deal was this. The, the uh, Jewish believers were still following the dietary laws. They were still kosher, right? So they're not eating or drinking certain things and only things that are prepared in a certain way and so forth. So they're still following that. And then these Gentiles come in and they're just eating stuff away. They're eating crazy stuff like ham. Like, what do you, you know, and so the, the Jewish believers are going, what are you doing? That's ham. I know, it's great. Especially on rye. No, no, you can't eat that. It's unclean. What, unclean? What are you talking about? So they have no idea. They're not even speaking the same language. And so the Gentiles are saying, look, I don't know what your problem is, but I'm eating my ham sandwich. Right? And the Jewish believers are saying that, that should never be. And, and this is really mounting up into a serious problem in the church. And so, so serious that it gets Paul's attention and he starts to address it. And so in the 14th chapter of the book of Romans, Paul is addressing this controversy. And, you know, he, he deals with it fairly extensively. But again, it boils down, the essence of his argument boils down to a couple of verses 
um, in chapter 14. So 14 through, or 17 through 19, this is what Paul wrote. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you serve Christ with this attitude, you will please God and others will approve of you too. So then, let us aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. So Paul is saying, this issue of what you eat is not central. If you have a problem eating certain foods, don't eat them. If you have no problem eating certain foods, have at it. And then he says, you know, but be kind to each other. If, if you know somebody has a problem with you eating a ham sandwich, then in their presence, don't eat a ham sandwich. Treat them with a level of respect and courtesy, even though it's not a problem for you, knowing that it may be a problem for them. The important thing is, the central thing is, to live a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what's important here. And so, as a community, Live in harmony with each other and build each other up. Man, that's good stuff, isn't it? That's good stuff. Because God knows that the world can tear people down. We can be out there in the world and people are saying things and doing things to each other and it is just ripping people apart. And folks feel discouraged and, and rejected. And, and the church should be a different kind of place. The church should be a place where we come and we're built up, we're encouraged, we're reminded of who we are and whose we are. That we are God's beloved. That we matter for all eternity. That's what the church should be. So fast forward about 1,500 years. It's still an issue, this not clear about what's core and, you know, being at odds with one another over this stuff. There's a war raging in Europe. It's a war that lasts for 30 years. Historians call it the 30 years war. I don't know where they got that, but 30-year right? war that tore Europe up. And that war was started over a theological disagreement between Catholics and Protestants that ignited that and led into this war. It very quickly turned from being a theological issue to being about economics and, and land and power and all the stuff that you know defines sin. But it started because Christ followers got into it with each other over a theological point, over theological points, and began a war that ultimately cost eight million lives. Massive de devastation. 
our words matter. The way we talk to each other, the way we talk about each other matters. Because we could inadvertently say things about people and to people that just ignite something that we have no idea where it's going to lead and do great, great damage to people and to the cause of Christ in the world. So in the midst of that war, there was a pastor who, seeing what happened and what was going on, coined this phrase. He said, you know, in, in the essentials, we should have unity. In the non-essentials, we should have liberty. And in all things, we should have charity, which is kind of an old word for love. In the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. In other words, we need to be clear about the kerygma, clear about what's core to us. And all of us should be unified in those core things. Things that are not core, we can have diversity of views. You can believe one thing, you can interpret scripture one way, I interpret it a different way, I understand it a different way, and that doesn't make us less brothers and sisters, that doesn't diminish our faith in Christ or our care for each other at all. It doesn't have to. We can have those conversations, we can disagree, we can disagree strongly with each other. But at the end of that discussion, at the end of that moment, we should be able to give each other a hug and go and have pot roast, you know, <laughs> like whatever, because that's a meat you can eat. You see, this, this thing about, you know, all of this is we can say, you know, well, that, that's so silly, you know, that they were concerned about those, those laws back then, or they were concerned about, you know, what kind of food they, that's just silly. But what are the things that we have today, that we hold on to today, that we treat as central today, that years from now people are going to look back and say, really? They were divided over that? They were fighting over that? They were killing each other over that, figuratively if not literally? So the question is, what's core? What is central? What is the kerygma? And there's lots of ways that we can talk about that. But I think probably the clearest way, the most uh, complete way, is from antiquity, an ancient creed that really defines the faith in a succinct kind of way, but a very full way as well. It really talks about this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what Christian people believe. And so just as a reminder, let me share it with you. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, 
suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church universal, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. That's our kerygma. That's our core. That's what we believe. That's the good news that we are mandated to share with the world. And when we do that well, we make a huge difference. And around those are the things about which we disagree, we can continue to exercise charity, love toward each other. It's appropriate that this message would fall on this Sunday. Today is worldwide communion. That means that Christians across the world are sharing communion together on this day. Tens of millions of believers in towns and villages and cities around the world in different languages and cultures and, and settings are sharing in this communion. It's a reminder to us that we are not just one church in one location. We're not just one church in one denomination or one country. It's a global church, a global movement. And the thing that we share in common is this sacrament, this reminder of who Jesus is and what a difference he makes in our lives. So the Bible tells us that before taking communion, we should take a moment and examine ourselves and confess our sin to God. Those places where we fall short, where we're missing the mark. So I want to give you a moment to just do some business with God on that, and then we'll pray a corporate prayer of confession together as we prepare for communion. So take a few moments to pray. God, you tell us that you are more anxious to forgive our sins than we are to ask for your forgiveness. But when we do ask that you forgive us completely and remember our sin no more. So thank you for your forgiveness. Lord, even as you've heard us as individuals, continue to hear us as together as a congregation. We pray this corporate prayer of confession. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart or our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and humbly repent. Forgive us, we pray. Teach us to. So we have this mandate to go into all of the world to make disciples and a message of good news for everyone. And when we follow that mandate, when we bring that good news, when we remember who we are and don't get lost in things that divide us, the church can do amazing things, be a great blessing to communities all around them.
And that's a decision that each of us make. This isn't a decision a church makes as a policy. It's not a decision one person uh, gets to make for everybody. Every one of us makes that choice to be a representative in the world in which we live, to be a representative here of a God who knows us, who loves us, who accepts us as we are, and encourages us to take next steps toward him. When we live that, man, we can bless the heck out of the world. So let's be that kind of church. Amen? Have a great week, everybody.